0: Open your Bibles this morning to Psalm 51. Your life is hard enough, but it's even more difficult when you, when you don't sense the presence of God in your life. If you're a guest with us, we've been looking at passages in the Psalms where it appears that God has forsaken his people, where the psalmist senses a separation between he and God. That God's hand isn't on him or God's presence isn't with him. Sometimes it's just the result of circumstances in life. They're so overwhelming, so difficult, so arduous. We know in our minds that God will never leave us or forsake us, but in our hearts we feel all alone. Sometimes it's sitting in a hospital room with a loved one battling with a serious illness. At other times, it's gathering together as a family and one family member has gone off on their own way, literally abandoned the family. And when the family gathers together, the family doesn't feel like it's all together and Sometimes they sense in this dark period of time that maybe God has left them or abandoned them. It's not because of any personal sin on their behalf. Maybe it's the sin of others or just the circumstances of life. But sometimes we sense that absence of God's presence because of personal sin. Sometimes our sinful choices have distanced us from God. Psalm 51 isn't a song of lament. We've been looking at songs of lament. It's a a psalm, well, it's a penitential psalm. But what I want to suggest to you is there's a common trajectory between the songs of lament and Psalm 51, from darkness and despair to singing and rejoicing. Now the pathway from one to the other is a little bit different in the Song of Lament than it is in the Penitential Psalms, but I want to suggest to you that there is some, there is some similarities. The thing I love about the Bible is how honest the Bible is. Now, the Bible doesn't just paint beautiful pictures of flawed people. It paints pictures of flawed people that are transformed, and it often paints pictures of transformed people who do terrible things. That's what Psalm 51 is about. In fact, look at the superscription to the psalm. For the choir director, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. you know most people are familiar with the story of David. David was Israel's greatest king. Israel was a, David was a monumental person in Old Testament history. David was described as a man after God's own heart. David accomplished monumental feats of faith. And yet, in the episode that is being described in this superscription, which was written by David, he describes one of the darkest periods in David's life. If we had time, we'd go back to the book of uh, 2 Samuel and we discover that there, David was at home when he should have been off at war. He had sent his soldiers off to war and Kings accompanied the soldiers. He was the leader of the military. He was the leader of the nation. He should have been with his men as they did battle, but he stayed behind. Which which was the first indication, something's amiss with David. Something's off with David. Something's wrong with David. And instead of going off to war, he remained behind and, and then... The book describes how David entered into an adulterous relationship with Bathsheba. A powerful man gawking at a scantily clad young lady and then using his authoritative position to enter into a physical relationship with her. It's despicable, it's disgusting, but the Bible doesn't hide the warts and the flaws and the sins of some of its most heroic figures. If that wasn't enough, David then sent Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, into the very heat of battle. He had had his generals put him on the front lines where he would most certainly be killed, and he was killed, and after he was killed, he brought Bathsheba, who was with child, into his harem despicable and disgusting and a filthy act by what had become a dirty old man at this point in his life. But you need to remember that people don't just become dirty old men after being described as a man after God's own heart in just a matter of days. David apparently had been sliding downward for quite some time. If you've ever been on a a water slide, you you, you see that tremendous uh, incline, and when you sit down, you don't realize how fast you're really going to go, but once you get on that slide, and you start descending, you pick up speed, and you go faster and faster, and you're running through your mind, what's a 58-year-old man doing on this slide? What's a 58-year-old? Then before you know it, you've plunged, and you're at the bottom of the slide. It happens before you even know it. It happens so quickly, and apparently that's what happened to David. David. And for an entire year, David put on a front that he was a man of God, that he was a man after God's own heart, that he was a leader of God's people. And and then the prophet Nathan came to David, and as only a prophet can do, he, he pointed that long finger at David, and he said, David, let me tell you a story. There's a rich man that had a large flock of sheep, Next to him, there was an impoverished man that just had one little lamb. The rich man wanted to have a party for his friends, so he took the one little lamb from the impoverished man and he slayed it and he fed it to his guest. David became enraged. David became righteously indignant that anybody would do that. And when Nathan Saul, David's response, he knew that he had David where he wanted him to be, and he said, David, you're the man. You stole this man's wife and then put him into the heat of battle and had him killed. You're despicable and disgusting. And God used Nathan and David's life to turn his life around. This once proud, godly man that killed Goliath. That could slay a lion had developed into a leering creep. And when Nathan said, David, you're the man, God penetrated his heart. And what David did for us was he opened up his prayer closet and he allows us to listen in. What did he say to God? How did, he, how did he get right with God? How can a man that fallen so far, so fast, and been so despicable ever get back into good favor with God? Well, what did he say? What did he do? How did he do it? Well, that's exactly what Psalm 51 is. It's a humble sinner allowing us to learn from his despicable sin and saying to us, there is a way back. You may be where David is, just playing the game, just pretending to be somebody that you're, you're not. Or maybe you're just sitting down on the slide and you're just beginning the fall. You haven't even picked up a lot of speed yet. David's got a word for you today. He's got a word for all of us today. When God hides his face and it's because of our sin, there is a road home. Psalm 66 verse 18 puts it like this. I think this is what would have resonated in David's mind. If I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. David might have been wondering, why isn't God answering my prayers? Why isn't God extending my kingdom in the way that I want it to be extended? Because God wasn't listening to him. Or Isaiah put it like this, Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save, nor his ear so dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. That's where David was. God closed his ears and turned his face away from David because of David's sinful choices. Well, what I want to do this morning is I want you to notice four movements in the psalm. Each of these four movements, I think, teaches us a principle about repentance and faith and confession. And then I want to give you some final thoughts at the end. The first one is in the first two verses. Look there with me. When God convicts you of sin, remember his mercy. When God convicts you of sin, remember his mercy. Let me read these two verses, and I want to point out three things to you. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to, your, to the greatness of your compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Notice what David knows. Notice what David knows. David knows his behavior is sinful. David knows that he has offended a holy God. Notice he uses three different words for sin. Transgressions, iniquity, and sin. Circle them in your Bible. There are three different Hebrew words. Transgressions, iniquity, and sin. They have slightly different meanings. But I don't think that David wants us to get out the scalpel and then closely describe the differences in the words. I think it's the repetition that's most important. David knows he sinned. He didn't just make a mistake. He he, he didn't just make a misstep. It is a genuine, actual sin. Not a mistake, but a sin. The second thing I want you to notice is what David feels. I want you to notice what he feels. He feels dirty. He feels stained. He senses an impurity about himself. Notice he says at the end of verse 1, he says, Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly. Cleanse me from my sin. He feels dirty. He is dirty. Sin stains our conscience. It perverts our perspective. It causes us to rationalize things we know to be wrong when we're in our right minds because sin leads to spiritual insanity. It's spiritually insane for David to think that he can have a physical relationship with a woman that he's not married to and God not deal with him about it. Sin leads to spiritual insanity. It stains us. It taints our perspective. It's like having glasses that that are dirty and you just don't see clearly. He says, Wash me, cleanse me, blot out my my transgressions. He feels the contamination of his sin. Whenever God begins to deal with us about a particular area of sin, we don't rationalize it, we realize it makes us dirty. The third thing is he asks for God's gracious mercy based on God's character. Be gracious to me, O God. The NIV says, have mercy on me, O God. Do for me what I don't deserve. That's what mercy is. Do for me what I don't deserve. Be merciful. Be gracious to me. But notice the graciousness is not based on his change of mind, the graciousness, the mercy is based on who God is. According to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion. Have mercy on me. What does that mean? It means blot out my transgressions, wash me, and cleanse me. Not because of who I am, but because of who you are. You are loving. And you are compassionate. I want you to notice with me, secondly, that when God begins to deal with us about sin, and it might not be the sin of adultery, it might not be what we might consider one of those monumental sins, but sin nonetheless, sin that that begins to drive a wedge between us and God, be straightforward in your confession without making excuses. Be straightforward in your confession without making excuses. So what David does in verses 3 and 4 is he describes the nature of sin. Look in verse 3 and 4 with me. For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. I want you to notice three things in these two verses. First, actually two things. The first thing is he's taking responsibility for it. I know my transgressions and my sin. He doesn't blame it on his wife or wives. He doesn't blame it on his circumstances or situation. He doesn't blame it on his past. He he takes full responsibility. It is my transgression. It is my sin. Sometimes I'll talk to people and They'll be, have committed sins very similar to what David has committed. And, well, you don't understand my wife. My wife doesn't meet my needs. My wife doesn't love me in an affectionate, kind, and caring kind of way. She drove me away. She, she's, she, she's to blame in part for this. No, when God begins to deal with a person, they don't blame shift. They say, my transgressions, my sin. And the second thing is it's against, first and foremost, against God. Did he sin against Bathsheba? Absolutely he sinned against Bathsheba. Did he sin against Uriah? You better bet he sinned against Uriah. He sinned against the entire people of God. He was given responsibility for leading God's people and he became so entangled in corruption and sin that he sinned against the people of God. He sinned against Bathsheba, he sinned against Uriah, and he sinned against God's people. And he says, but... Beyond all of that, first and foremost, my sin is against God. Against you and you only have I sinned. That is the greatest act of defilement and sin was against God. He put himself in God's place. He began to make decisions for himself that weren't right for him to make. In fact, that's what John Stott says the essence of sin is. John Stott puts it this way. The essence of sin is man substituting himself for God while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Man claims prerogatives which belong to God alone. God accepts penalties which belong to man alone. David moves from the acts of sin in verses 3 and 4 to the origin of sin in verses 5 and 6. He says, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. He's not saying that the act of conception was sinful. He's saying that he inherited a sinful nature. It's the doctrine of original sin. From one man, Adam, sin passed to all men. So we're born sinners, we're born separated from God, we're born needing a Savior. He goes on to say, behold, you desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. And so he moves from the act of sin to the origin of sin. But I want you to notice, thirdly, in verses 7 through 12, when God begins to work in us and convict us of sin, whether it's what we might consider a sin monumental like David, or maybe a a sin of short-temperedness with our children, or laziness on the job. He says, ask God for cleansing and renewal. Ask God for cleansing and renewal. He prays that God would forgive him in verses 7, 8, and 9, and then he prays that God would renew him in verses 10, 11, and and 12. So ask God for cleansing, verses 7 through 9, and for inner renewal in verses 10 through 12 because something's askew in the heart. So first he asks for cleansing. Verse 7 through 9 is really a restating of verses 1 and 2 only in reverse order. Notice as I read this you're going to see wash me, purify me, blot out. Those are words that we saw in verses 1 and 2. The order is going to be reversed, however. Verse 7, purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. You see here for the first time that the God's hand had been heavy upon him. When he says, let the bones which you have broken rejoice, is an indicator that God had been convicting him of his sin. God had withdrawn his presence. There was a distinct absence of the anointing and empowerment of God on David's life during those many months. Yeah, yeah, up for a year. And so when he says, let the bones which you have broken rejoice, restore to me the joy of my salvation. That's what he's going to say in just a moment. And so here in verses 7, 8, 9, he's asking for forgiveness. Notice he says, purify me, wash me, blot out all my iniquities, forgive me of my sin. The, word, the, the idea in the word blot out, it's an interesting term. It was a It was a term that carries the idea of sins being listed on a board. And when he says blot them out, he says erase them, remove them. And that's exactly what God does when he forgives us of our sin. He blots them out. He erases them from the heavenly ledger. And then in verses 10 through 12, he asks for inner renewal. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Work deep in the recess of my being. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Notice, create in me a clean heart. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Work deep inside me. Do not cast me away. Do not cast, let me get it right. Do not cast me away from your presence. And do not take your Holy Spirit from me. We sometimes get worried about that that phrase, do not take your Holy Spirit from me, but we need to remember where these events took place. They took place on the other side of the cross. They took place before the Holy Spirit indwelt the people of God. The Spirit of God was with the people of God, with the people of God nationally nationally. And then the Spirit of God would come on, prophet, priests, and kings to empower them and enable them to do great and and magnificent feats on his behalf and for his glory. But David knew that God had taken his hand off of Saul, that God had taken his favor away from Saul. That's what he's talking about. Don't do to me what you did to Saul. In fact, the former line in Hebrew poetry here, helps us to interpret the latter line. Look at it again with me. The latter line in verse 11 says, do not take your Holy Spirit from me. The former line means the same thing. It's just stated in slightly different words. Do not cast me away from your presence. You see, that's the forsaken sense that David was living with, the abandonment that he he felt. So he says, In verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Notice how it's working inside me. A willing spirit, a steadfast spirit, a clean heart. He prays for forgiveness and renewal. You you sense pulsating through these words the repentance of David. He's not just saying words that he thinks God wants to hear. He's expressing the agony of soul for his betrayal of God. And dripping through every word, I think, is the understanding and the thought of repentance. J.C. Ryle says this about repentance. True repentance is no light matter. It is a thorough change of heart about sin, a change showing itself in godly sorrow and humiliation, in heartfelt confession before the throne of grace. That's what's going on here. Nothing to hold back, no, no, no caveats, no parentheses. He's laying out his soul expressing his genuine, heartfelt remorse for his sin and his desire to be washed and renewed because he's changed his disposition and attitude and mind about what he's done. He's, let us see that there's something going on inside of him. He wants this clean heart. He wants this steadfast spirit. He wants God's manifest presence. He doesn't want God hiding himself from him. And he wants the joy of his salvation. Notice there in verse 12 again, restore to me the joy of my salvation. He wants God's presence, he wants God's renewing work in his life, but he wants the joy that he once knew. C.S. Lewis said this about joy, joy is the serious business of heaven. In the first service we baptized Two ladies that have come to faith in Christ in in uh, in recent months, and as they were being baptized, there's a party was being thrown in heaven. Jesus said, "There's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety nine righteous persons who need no repentance." Joy's the business of heaven. In fact, the fruit of the spirit is love. Joy, it's second. I think they're delineated in a particular order for a particular reason. Joy is a very, a very important spiritual privilege of God's people. We sometimes think that the Christian life and the Christian should like walk around with slumped shoulders. Kind of a pious, sour demeanor on one's face. Something reminiscent of a stomach virus. Well... The Christian life isn't all high fives and fist bumps. They're very dark, difficult, disappointing, arduous days. But joy is an emotion that runs deeper than pain and pleasure. Joy is something different than happiness, which is based on life's circumstances. God himself is joyful. Have you ever thought about that? God is a joyful God. If the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy, that Spirit tells us that God himself is a God of joy. I meditated quite a bit this last week on this particular psalm and and on this particular verse. Let me read to you something that that I wrote for myself. Fullness of joy glorifies God and strengthens the heart fixated on God. Fullness of joy glorifies God and strengthens the heart fixated on God. Do you remember from our study of Nehemiah the joy of the Lord is my strength. When I am weak, I need an infusion of joy. I went on to say that joylessness can be, not always, but can be, an evidence of the lack of the Spirit's fullness in the believer's life. Let me read it all. Fullness of joy glorifies God and strengthens the heart fixated on God. Joylessness can be an evidence of the lack of the Spirit's fullness in the believer's life. Well, finally, turn with me to verses 13 through 17. In verses 13 through 17, what's that fourth verse? Principle, that fourth idea that I think comes to us from David's confession. That is, make a fresh commitment to serving God. Make a fresh commitment to serving God. Uh, Notice in these verses the, the idea of service permeating what David prays. Verse 13. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. But sometimes people think we don't have a past. Sometimes people think we've always been saved. They don't understand that God plucked us from a miry pit. Sometimes believers think, well, you've never struggled with sin before. You've never had an argument with your wife. You've never kicked the dog. You don't understand what I'm going through and... When we have fallen and we have sinned and we have, we have lived in a period of darkness because of our sin and God has renewed us and restored us and, and worked in us, we're able to sit down with a, a brother or sister over a cup of coffee and says, you know, I, I know exactly how things are in your home because you, you probably wouldn't believe this, but my, my own marriage was on the brink of destruction. You probably wouldn't understand this, but I once got fired from a job because of my laziness. You, you probably wouldn't understand this, but, but whatever the circumstance might be, whatever the situation may be, whatever, uh, whatever it might be, you can relate to someone. And then God takes a dark period of your life and uses it for his glory and somebody else's good. See, Satan wants to use it To keep you down, to wallow in the mire of self pity, to feel like you can never come back. There's there's no way you can ever get to where you want to be now, Not, not after this, not after what you've done. Well, God takes those dark periods and He allows us to tell a story of His grace and restoration in our lives. He says, Deliver me from blood guiltlessness, O God, the God of my salvation, then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. Notice he first talks about witness, then he talks about worship. Worship. But it's the trajectory in all of these psalms goes from despair to worship. There's something about singing. There's something about singing often. There's something about singing loudly. There's something about singing to the Lord. Not just recounting any, any tune. Just can't sing Bill Withers' Lovely Day and, and think that that's, that's what's going to do it. It's singing the great hymns of the faith. Singing the, the beautiful Hymns of contemporary musicians and artists is singing them loudly and, de- and boldly and in the face of hell defiantly. Regardless of what the enemy is saying to us or doing against us, we open our lips and we declare his praise. Because we know that he doesn't care what we do if our heart isn't right toward him. He says, for you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offerings. What God wants, the sacrifices of God, are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O oh God, you will not despise a, a humble heart. He doesn't reject. By your favor, do good design Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then, then you will delight in righteous sacrifices. That is, there comes a point where we make that sacrifice, whatever it may be. And he's delighted in it because our heart is right with him. And burnt offerings and whole offerings, then young bulls will be offered in your altar. What a beautiful reminder of what God does in us and for us. In verse 13... God will use our sin after we have been restored as a testimony to others. In verse 14 and 15, we will then engage once again in genuine, authentic, heartfelt worship. And finally, we will be able to offer to God the sacrifices that are genuinely pleasing to him let me say just a couple of, of final things this morning the first one is this praise God for the Nathans God sends into our lives the people that we rub shoulders with on an every, every day brothers and sisters who love us and know us and have the courage to look us in the face and say listen I heard how you spoke to your wife I thought it was appalling You owe your wife an apology. See, a lot of us, we want to withdraw from that kind of fellowship. But by withdrawing from that kind of fellowship, we're withdrawing from the presence of God because God uses his people to love us and rebuke us. Praise God for the Nathans that he sends into our lives who love us enough to tell us the truth when we get off course. The second thing I would say is that there's a a great difference between genuine guilt and false guilt. Genuine guilt is the result of conviction of sin. We feel dirty because we are dirty. That is, we know that we don't have to commit the sin of adultery like David did to need the conviction of the Holy Spirit and to be walking in a greater degree of holiness with the Lord. So there's real, genuine, authentic guilt as a result of the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. That happens every day. Every one of us sin every day. None of us who have indwelling sin, and that's all of us, do everything we ought to do in a day. So we're regularly confessing our sin keeping very short accounts of it. But what Satan will often do is one of two things. He will try to burden us with false guilt. There's two kinds of false guilt. One is kind of a nebulous feeling. Something's wrong, I don't feel right. And that's not of God. When God convicts us of sin, it's clear, it's direct, it's pointed, We know it. God wants us to know what we've done so that we can confess it. But if it's just this general feeling of guiltiness, uh, that's that's demonic, satanic, hellish. So what do you do? You just start singing. Start confessing the truth. You start reading the Bible to yourself, for yourself. And the Spirit of God uses the Word of God and the singing of the truth that that we lift up to to uh, cast aside the false, uh, the accuser of the brethren. The other kind of false guilt is when Satan keeps taking us back to, th- to those things that God has forgiven us for. If God has forgiven us, then he's washed us, he's cleansed us, he's erased the board. And when we keep going back, we're diminishing the person and work of Jesus. We're saying that Christ... Person and work isn't enough. I need to beat myself up. I need to to do more to myself. It's not right for me to to get off by just confessing, genuinely confessing, heartfelt confession of repentance. There's got to be more. That's, That's not from God. Now, that's not to say that there's not consequences to sin. There are consequences. There are consequences to sin the greater the sin, and all sin is sin, but some sin is more consequential than other sin. It's one thing for me to say to my my child, be quiet and, and say it too harshly, and another thing, to have sex with someone that's not his mother. They're both sin. One carries a greater degree of consequences than the other. That is, you may have, you may have, been an abusive father verbally and physically and after your children were grown you came to saving faith in Christ genuinely, authentically really saved and you call your child and you say listen I've been saved please forgive me for the way that I was as a father while you were while I was raising you I was a bad father I wasn't engaged in your life and I, I didn't love you the way that you ought to have been loved and and they say they forgive us but there's a distance there's a a barrier well, that's the consequence of sin That barrier will only come down a little bit at a time over a number of years. And depending on the level of difficulty in the relationship, it might take decades. But that doesn't mean that you're not forgiven. It just means you experience the consequences of your actions even after you've been forgiven. No, I like what John Stott had to say. Sin is putting yourself where only God belongs. Salvation is God putting himself where only man belongs. If you're here today and you don't know the Savior, the good news of this passage is you can never be so far from God, he can't find you. You can never be so far from God, he can't save you. You can never do something so deplorable that God can't cleanse you. Say, Pastor, how, how does it work? If you'll come in just a moment, we're going to have some people here. If you'll come forward, we'll let you talk to them. They'll talk to you privately, confidentially, not going to manipulate you in any way, not going to pressure you in any, in any sense. But would love to talk with you about, about where you are with the Lord maybe you find yourself sitting on the precipice of that uh, water slide. And you're getting, ready to, you're getting ready to make the slide. It's not too late to get up. It's embarrassing to sit down to be in the position, but it's a lot more embarrassing to actually descend the slide. And if David, a man after God's own heart, could go there, so could you and I. So could you and I. Maybe during the singing, what you'll do is you'll just get back up and you'll find a brother or sister. You'll find a Nathan and say, hey, Nathan, I don't know if you've seen this in my life, but I want you to know where I've been. I want to confess it to you, and I want you to pray for me and hold me accountable. Maybe you need to do that today. Maybe you've allowed Satan, the deceiver, the one who slanders, to rob you of the joy of the Lord because he keeps bringing back a past that's been forgiven, that's been washed, that God doesn't remember anymore. He's separated as far as the east is from the west. He's put it behind his back. And, and you're just living joyless Christianity because it keeps coming to your mind. Start singing. Sing loudly. Sing defiantly. Sing intentionally. Read the Bible to yourself. Say about yourself what God says about you in Christ Jesus. If you're looking for a church home, we'd love for you to come down, and we'd like to talk with you about that as well. Would you stand? Let me lead us in a word of prayer. Craig's going to come and lead us in song. got a couple of announcements and one one matter at the end to talk about. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you that David opened up his heart in humility to let us see and to hear what he was saying to you and to feel what he was experiencing. And so, Father, have your way in us in these final, final moments together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.